This is WSFI Spotlight, a conversation with Catholics living in the light. Welcome. This is Elizabeth Yor. I'm an attorney and an international child advocate. And this morning we have an exciting talk in guests today to talk about religious freedom and the Constitution, the true nature of the threat we're facing. And with me today is Mr. Philip Haney. And Mr. Haney has been on Fox and been on television and has written a book called See Something, Say Nothing. And we are very blessed in Lake County to be welcoming Phil Haney on June 12th. So this is the introduction to Mr. Haney before he arrives um, on the shores of uh, Lake Michigan here in Lake County, which will be Tuesday, June 12th at the University of St. Mary of the Lake Seminary at the dining hall at 7.30 in the morning, and the breakfast talk will begin at 8.30. And I'm urging all of you to jot this down. We'll make another announcement. WSFI is hosting this amazing talk with Phil Haney. Welcome, Phil. Uh, happy to have you join us on Spotlight this morning. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. Well, I want to give a little bit of your amazing background, Phil, for our audience. Uh, Phil Haney um, is uh, a founding member of Homeland Security, and he spent 15 years in Homeland Security hunting down and exposing enemy networks operating in the United States. And one of the reasons he's become, he was such a valuable member of Homeland Security is Phil studied Arabic culture and the language while working as a scientist in the Middle East. And then in, nine, in 2002, Phil joined uh, the Department of Homeland Security as a Customs and Border Protection Agricultural uh, Officer. And before you know it, he was in the midst of um, the advanced targeting team, an unprecedented accomplishment for an <laughs> agent on temporary duty assignment. Phil has an amazing story that he told in his book, See Something, Say Something, Say Nothing. And I think it's the Say Nothing, which is extremely important for our guests today to hear about. And again, Phil is going to be in Lake County, sponsored by WSFI, next Tuesday, June 12th at 7.30. We're registering at St. Mary of the Lake Seminary in the dining hall. And Phil's amazing talk, I have heard him speak, and he is riveting. Um, he will be talking at 8.30 on Tuesday, June 12th. So, Phil, I have some questions for you about your experience with Homeland Security, your talks now that you've left after 15 years in Homeland Security. Nobody has the experience, the insight of the national security dangers to our country as you do. Um, we're good friends, um, and I'm so thrilled that you're going to be bringing your knowledge, your um, personal story to Lake County. Um, can I ask you, uh, my first question is, when and do we have, have we experienced a national security meltdown in the United States? And if so, when did this meltdown begin? Yes, we have been experiencing national security meltdown. I think with current events on what I call the national big screen, whatever you want to call the Mueller investigation with President Trump and all the uh, confusing, contradicting explanations from 
former members of uh, the Obama administration, the FBI, the CIA, the National Intelligence Agency, the Department of Justice. They can't seem to figure out what their left hand and their right hand are. That started, to answer the second part of your question, I really noticed it beginning to appear to surface above the water in about the middle of 2006, which, yes, is about halfway through uh, President Bush's second term. But that's when some of the policy directives, the memos, the, uh, the directives that we would get from management in Washington started filtering down to our at the port level. My port was Atlanta, where we should stop using particular words like jihad and other quote-unquote inflammatory or possibly discriminatory terms. Even though the groups that we were looking at and following used those terms in their everyday language. So, yes, it started about mid-2006 from where my position in, inside Customs and Border Protection. And the very same individuals that we hear about every day, Clapper, Mueller, Brennan, Holder, Napolitano, Jay Johnson, even President Obama himself, were all still involved in the government at the time that I was active duty. And that's where, as you mentioned, I came face to face with them. And in a sense, you could say I collided head on with their policies because the oath of office that I took was to attract those people and keep them from coming into the country. But because they have a different, different definition of sovereignty and constitutional duty, they began to bring those people into the administration and give them positions of influence and authority. So obviously, if you have one branch of the government, law enforcement, trying to stop people that come into the country, and another branch of the government, the executive branch, wanting to let them in, then obviously something's going to happen. And that is where the meltdown began, right there. Phil, you must have thought you were having an out-of-body experience when you started getting these directives from our government to undermine the very work that you were doing. And if you can, in a nutshell, um, tell the audience quickly about kind of the the people you were tracking, the kind of terrorist events that were on your radar, and what actually was done to you. Um, I'm talking to Phil Haney, who is going to be coming to Lake County at, as a guest and uh, host of WSFI. He's an amazing patriot, a brilliant tactician, and one of the founding members of Homeland Security. And Phil's going to tell us a little bit right now about um, that colli collision, if you will, with the um, investigative techniques that you were using and the higher-ups in our government. Sure, thank you. That's a great question. Even though I focus mainly on counterterrorism, I worked on drug cases, on human trafficking, on uh, smuggling cases, on trafficking of stolen property, along with lots of other relate 
cases that, of people crossing the border. But my main focus was uh, two groups that we've heard a lot about in the news. The Muslim Brotherhood, which is a global-level organization that was started in Egypt in 1928, and another global-level organization was somewhere between 125 to 150 million members called Tablighi Jamaat. And that name means the party of promoters. The closest equivalent we have in the Christian worldview would be evangelists. They are the evangelists of the Muslim world, and they originate out of the Indian subcontinent. So I worked on those two large global-level groups, Tablighi Jamaat and the Muslim Brotherhood. And again, this is where the collision began, because believe it or not, under the previous administration, they made a deliberate and intentional decision to form a political alliance with the Muslim Brotherhood, not only in the domestic policy arena here in America, but also on the larger foreign policy arena. And we saw that manifested in particular during the Arab Spring, 2010, 2011, 2012, when this Arab Spring movement swept through the Middle East and destabilized the governments of several Middle Eastern countries. And we're still seeing the aftermath of it today. And what's important to note is that the Obama administration specifically, deliberately and intentionally partnered, allied with the Muslim Brotherhood, who in turn destabilized the governments of these countries and what we see in the middle now, Middle East now is a byproduct of that policy. But it's also happening on the domestic level with organizations that are active here in the United States who are doing what I call saturate. They saturate into the social arena, into the political arena, and into the law enforcement arena and interfere with, file lawsuits, complain, do protests, anything that might be seen from their perspective as interfering with their attempts to advance Islam, they fight against it. And, for example, the recent appointment of Fred Flights as uh, Bolton's chief of staff, Chair Michigan, in fact, lodged a protest against that, saying that he's an Islamophobe and a racist and uh, anti-Muslim. And they do this kind of thing everywhere you turn. But the point to make is that they're Hamas. These are not benign social organizations. These have been proven in federal court for more than 10 years now to be irrefutably tied to Hamas, a globally designated terrorist organization. So yes, what you asked me earlier, if it was surreal, I say it's like Alice in Wonderland where the Dormouse has a 45. In other words, very, very surreal situation, but not funny. It's dangerous because the policies that were implemented by the former administration led to people losing their lives. And that's a very serious thing to say, I know. 
but I am a serious individual, and I never make statements without having facts to back it up. And that's why I emphasize so much that I worked on these particular groups and that I was a founding member and of the Department of Homeland Security and that I spent my entire career working on these organizations and that we had more than enough derogatory information to not only deport individuals or even put them in jail, but also to shut down the organizations that they were part of. And so the policies that were implemented that prevented us from doing our job led directly to attacks like San Bernardino, Orlando, and the Boston Marathon bombings. Um, When I make a statement like that, I should be able to back it up. And I went to Congress 65 times since around March of 2012 until this current year, 2018. I'm still going to Congress occasionally. And I made every possible effort I could to lay out the concerns that I have and documented it with, with information, classified level information in front of the Intelligence Committee, the Homeland Security Committee, the Judiciary Committee. You can watch my testimony before Senator Ted Cruz and the Senate Judiciary Committee which took place on the 28th of June, 2016, almost two years ago. What I have said is public record and also in classified briefings over and over again, more than a thousand times, literally more than a thousand times since I retired in July of 2015. I have been on Ray TV or Facebook Live or print articles of some sort or another, doing everything that I can to continue to uphold the oath of office that I took to help protect our country from threat, both foreign and domestic, and stand up for our Constitution. And that's why I'm talking with you this morning, because I'm still trying to sound the alarm and uh, bring to attention of people in positions of authority who can actually do something about it to take action. Well, Phil, so why is it important? Yeah, Phil, I you Go know ahead. I know you you are an amazing, amazing patriot. You're also a devout Christian, and I know when you took that oath of office, that vow was as important to you as uh, any Christian vow of marriage um, or any vow that we take um, with our hand on the Bible. And what I wanted to ask you, and our I'm talking with Phil Haney, who is a um, founding member of Homeland Security. He's going to be coming to WSFI's um, event on June 12th at 7.30 at Our Lady of uh, St. Mary of the Lake Seminary in the dining hall. He'll be speaking at 8.30. There'll be a breakfast beforehand. And uh, Phil is being very humble because he has a hair-raising story to tell about what he endured, the persecution. We would call it, Christians would call it the white persecution that he endured because he spoke the truth to power and was desperately trying to uphold his vow um, to keep the United States safe from all domestic and foreign um, enemies. And Phil, you know, when you took that vow, you, you often speak about the importance of sovereignty as a nation. And I was wondering, how does 
this meltdown that you saw happening and um, happening still to this day, um, but to hopefully to a lesser degree, how does this affect our sovereignty as a nation? And if you could speak specifically to that for our audience. Sure. And yes, there is hope. I'm very hopeful. In fact, I'm hot, greatly encouraged, and it gives me the motivation to continue to do this because I do see signs of hope, and I want to be a part of that. But how does the national security meltdown uh, connect to sovereignty as the right to live under the form of government that we choose? According to the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, the Creator Himself instituted government among men in order to protect the liberties that he so generously endowed us with. So our sovereignty is defined by two documents that we know, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And those documents form a protective wall around our sovereignty that's more powerful than any physical wall made out of steel and stone that we could ever build. And if we understand that our rights have been endowed by our Creator generously in order to, for us to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of ha happiness, then that's our sovereignty. And so if you have a form of government that seeks to redefine that sovereignty not based on the Constitution, but on their own political worldview, which is what we've seen in the last administration in particular, then you be start to become a different country. And that's exactly what we've been seeing. We've been seeing conflict and uh, stress and tension in our political process. For example, if the administration had a constitutional definition of sovereignty, and they conducted their policies according to the Constitution, they would have never investigated me, because they would have readily acknowledged that what I was doing was completely constitutional, and that I was upholding the oath of office that I had taken, and colleagues like myself, and they would have encouraged us they wouldn't have put obstacles in our ways. But because their definition of sovereignty had something to do with diversity and inclusion and hope and change, and that they intended to fundamentally change America, people like myself were a problem to them because we wanted to enforce the law and prevent people from coming into the country that shouldn't be here. But according to the Obama administration, they extended civil rights and civil liberties and privacy rights protections that we consider part of our constitutional um, rights to foreign nationals. And when you extend civil rights and civil liberties and privacy protection rights to foreign nationals, I'm not talking about the basic fundamental courtesies and human rights. I'm talking about the ability of law enforcement to conduct interviews with people from foreign countries that are now stopped because 
those same individuals sue us, sue law enforcement agency for things like racism and discrimination, Islamophobia and bias, and the U.S. government backs them up. Well, it's hard to, you know, it's shocking when you hear this, but certainly you have um, a novel full of stories, although this is not uh, fiction, but um, fact. And it's really the life you've led as a, as a patriot in the Department of Homeland Security is really the stuff of a Tom Clancy novel. I'm talking with Phil... Phil Haney, ladies and gentlemen, who's going to be coming to Lake County on Tuesday, June 12. Phil is one of the founding members of Homeland Security. He has some amazing stories, shocking stories, but um, he's here to tell tell his brave testament of his um, battle um, with our government um, as they set out to really persecute him and to keep him from frankly, trying to protect our country. Phil, you talk about um, the danger of the Muslim Brotherhood and its infiltration in the United States. For those um, of us who um, certainly aren't experienced in the international terror organization, explain to our audience um, who is the Muslim Brotherhood, um, why are they dangerous, who has identified them, and what are their tactics, and how have they um, used those tactics in the United States? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Earlier we were talking about sovereignty, and the definition of sovereignty based on the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Well, the Muslim Brotherhood is a global-level organization that also has a definition of sovereignty. And that definition of sovereignty is in direct conflict with the U.S. Constitution. And that definition of sovereignty is known as Sharia law. Sharia law has points of conflict innumerable places between the Constitution and uh, Islamic Sharia law and the goal of the Muslim Brotherhood is to implement Sharia law everywhere in the world to replace other forms of government with what they see as the divinely mandated form of government under Sharia law that is their stated purpose it's part of their founding motto that is the goal of Hamas by the way it's not simply to do terrorism it's to remove Israel to push Israel out of that land because it's considered Islamic land. So Hamas has one approach. They're fighting against Israel. The Muslim Brotherhood is a global-level organization that has saturated itself into the social-political fabric of many countries around the world, including ours. Now, these different countries have different forms of government. And the Muslim Brotherhood operates, adapts itself to each one of those different kinds of governments that are operating in countries around the world. We're not an exception. Even though we have a U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, according to Sharia law, that has to be replaced. And, and that is the reason why there's such a fundamental threat right there. Phil, explain to the audience just a few of the examples of what Sharia law mandates um, so that um, Americans can understand why it's such a threat to our Constitution. 
Well, let's start off with the most fundamental one of all. According to the First Amendment, we have the right to assembly and freedom of expression and freedom of worship. According to Sharia law, if you are a Muslim, it's a capital offense to leave Islam. It's called apostasy. It's a death sentence. We don't have anything. We've never even considered that in the founding documents of, of our country that if you leave one denomination of Christianity, that people will come and kill you for it. But according to Islam, apostasy is a capital offense. Sharia law also allows a man to marry four wives. We do not consider polygamy to be legal here in America. So Americans would say, Phil, well, well, how does that affect us? I mean, you know, um, you know, it's just against our law, so why would it even be a threat in the United States? Why would Sharia law be a threat? Um, and is it playing out in the United States at this point in time? Yes. One of the indicators of it, if you look it up, you can find that there are instances, there are active cases right now on female genital mutilation which is such a horrible subject, I don't even like to talk about it. But unfortunately, it's emerging within the Muslim community here in the United States. There are cases now in Michigan and in Maine where... As a matter of fact, um, 500,000, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, says that in the United States, over 500,000 women and girls are um, at risk of female genital mutilation. That, I guess, you would you would say is an example of how Sharia has infiltrated um, and been imported into the United States. Yes, that's a good an example. Also, marriage and divorce law is in direct conflict with our civil law. The rights of inheritance of a divorced woman are completely different under Sharia. I shouldn't say inheritance. The rights of a divorced woman are completely different. In fact, the whole basis of divorce is different under Sharia law than it is in civil law, whether you're talking about the state of Illinois or at the federal level. So basic, there are a lot of different points of conflict between um, civil law at the state level, the federal constitution, and Sharia. And we just touched on a few of them. And Phil, you know, in, in England they have now England, where we, you know, um, our, you know, where we got our democracy and our constitution, they now have 85 Sharia courts that are operating um, in a parallel fashion to the English courts. Isn't that right? Do we have Sharia courts in the United States operating? We technically don't have Sharia courts, but we have an organization that's probably no less ominous and dangerous than a Sharia court, and that's called the Assembly of Muslim Jurists of America. It is a coalition of imams from across the country who issue fatwas, legal rulings, to help the Muslim community navigate its way through a non-Muslim culture like ours, Mm -hmm. so that they do everything they can to avoid violating tenets of Sharia law. Now, according to Article 6 of the Constitution, and this may be the core of the answer to your question, 
the U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land, and the judges of each state are bound thereby. If Sharia defines itself as a constitution, its own divinely mandated constitution, and our U.S. Constitution, according to Article 6, is the supreme law of the land, then right there you have a fundamental conflict between these two different forms of law, Constitution or Sharia. And so by Article 6, also known as the Supremacy Clause, Sharia is illegal, period. It doesn't even have to do with religion, per se. It has to do with civil law. It's illegal. And so any effort to normalize Sharia within the culture is unconstitutional. And that takes you again back to our starting point about the importance of understanding sovereignty as defined by the Constitution. If our elected officials had a basic fundamental comprehension of sovereignty based on the Constitution, we wouldn't be arguing about whether there's a place for Sharia law in our civil society. It would be obvious, and it would be prohibited. Folks, you're listening to Phil Haney, one of the founding members of Homeland Security. Um, you can see why it's an absolute necessity that you bring your teens, your college students, yourselves, your friends to um, our breakfast with Phil Haney on Tuesday, June 12th at St. Mary of the Lake Seminary in the dining hall. The Registration starts at 7.30. There'll be an 8 a.m. breakfast and an 8.30 talk. You'll hear more of this brilliance, this historical perspective, this history lesson, the civics lesson from Phil Haney. And uh, I would dare to say some stuff of a Tom Clancy novel because Phil has led a very exciting life. And you'll, you will all be inspired by his personal story, struggle. And uh, we're very lucky to have him here. And thanks to WSFI to bring him here. Uh, Religious Freedom in the Constitution is the title of Phil's talk. And that will be next Tuesday. June 12th at St. Mary of the Lake Seminary. Hope you can join us. Phil, thank you so much for this little introduction um, of your wonderful talk. Hope all can join us. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to be here with you all. Thanks, Phil. This has been WSFI Spotlight. For more information on this or any other program, email info at wsfiradio.org.